This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network and Maj Don are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy, sell, short, cover securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value if we are long and fall if we are short. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Avoiding the Crowd podcast. Welcome back. It's being hosted by Mashway Don. I'm, your, I'm producer Bobby, and uh, we're just so excited to have you all back. It's been a, a brief hiatus here, but we're back better than ever. we got a slew of guests coming up, and our, our first one's here today. But uh, first, let me throw it to the host uh, with the most, Mr. Mashway Don from Geo Investing. Mash, what's up, dude? How you doing? Yeah, good. It's been a long time. I enjoyed the break, though. <laughs> Oh, okay. So we're gonna have to talk like offline. <laughs> is that that that's kind of what you're trying to tell me? That it, more time for stocks. Okay, there you go. Yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't so much that you were you know you you. I mean, I felt like you missed me a lot. That's why we really wanted to get back into this. That but too. I mean, uh, okay, that's what I thought. And uh, <laughs> and also joining us is our guest today, Brian McCann from Bootstrap Capital. What's up, Brian? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump off. I'm gonna let you guys chat, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna enjoy from the sidelines. So uh, with that, Maj, Brian, have some fun. Hey, can I, can I just give you a quick commercial before you go? Oh, please. I just wanted to thank you for having me on. I think this is, this is a great opportunity to chat with you guys, and you know, I just wanted to highlight. Bobby's like, he's just like one of the best people out there for this, this space. I mean, you produce more content than like the top five podcasts put together. And I mean, your hustle is just amazing. And if you meet him in person, Bobby's like one of the nicest people you ever meet. So, um, so it's a big shout out to you and Maj. Thanks for having me. He's, he's great. He's a legend. He's, uh, he's been doing this forever and I'm really just proud to be here and talk with you guys. So awesome. thanks a lot. Of course. And Brian, your check is in the mail. So, thank you for, <laughs> but I really all do appreciate all 50 that. cents. All no, 50 cents. <laughs> I mean, right. thanks, man. I really do appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I, without further ado, you two, you guys have some fun. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a beer over here and uh, and listen in. All right. Hey, thanks, Brian. That was awesome. Thanks for the accolades there. But I mean, it's been great uh, getting to know you over the last few years. Um, I know we talked a little bit over the Corona. That was fun doing that and you know keeping each other stable and <laughs> level ahead. Yeah. And I don't know where we first met. I don't know if it was at one of Ian's conferences or I, I'm yeah. sure what it was. Yeah. We met at an MCC. Yeah. And then I started to pick your brain a lot. And then I joined Geo and then I picked your brain even more. And then we had we've dinner. Actually, <laughs> yeah. We've actually been a great source for us. I mean, you had some great research. <clears throat> I like you, you like a little, little info arb specialist here, here and there. I like that. And you do some special situation stuff, which is pretty awesome. So. You seem to think outside the box here and there. So I like that. And that was fun. And it's always been great talking about stocks. And so let's, uh, we'll get into that today a little bit. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little about yourself, your journey? Um, you know, are you a full-time investor? Do you manage money? Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Today here with what's going on in your life. And 
I was a precocious child. No. Um, so I, I'm a career switcher. So I had a long corporate career. I actually worked in logistics and supply chain for 16 years for the gap. Um, and I've always been interested in investing, but never really had the time to pursue it. I felt, um, so kind of somewhere along the way I started to, it's probably more fair to say that I was interested in money than investing because I always like saved money and hoarded money up. Um, and as a result, then I would go out and try to invest it. And generally speaking, what I did was lose it all. Um, so at, at a certain point in time, I decided I, did, I needed to get more serious about actually like say, you know, saving and investing properly. And so I started to, you know, learn more about like personal finance and that kind of thing. And I was always the one geeking out about the 401k at work and people were asking me questions. And so I kind of developed a love of personal finance from that um, and decided I was going to switch careers and become a financial advisor. Kind of in parallel with that, I, I was also experimenting with picking stocks and doing horribly bad at it. Um, but eventually I, I was actually dating my wife, my now wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. And I stopped and visited her at her apartment one time. And she had a book on her bookshelf called The Warren Buffett Way. And I kind of knew about Warren Buffett, but I didn't know anything about him really. You know, I just heard of him, knew he was a good investor. And so I asked her if I could borrow the book. And she was like, sure, I think my brother gave that to me or something. I've never read it. And so I borrowed the book and I read it. And it was like a light bulb went off, right? Um, so for a long time, I kind of identified as a value investor, but really what I think that book taught me was fundamental analysis, like how to look at companies as businesses. And that's really where I got interested in stock picking. So kind of at the same time I started my um, financial advising firm, I also started to get interested in stock picking. And, and so it's kind of those two have been kind of parallel paths for me. So it's like a I'm definitely a part-time investor, but I spend a lot of time on it, but it varies highly. So most, a lot of my process is actually built around the, the fact that I've not had a lot of time to do analysis and spend on investing. So, um, you know, I have a lot of short circuits in my research process and things like that, that or maybe lack of research process is a better idea, a better, uh, better way to say it. Um, so, so, so Brian, when you were, um, when you were investing, um, in the beginning, when you weren't doing so hot, what were you doing? And we're curious, like, how were you finding your stocks? Um, were, you, were you doing bad in stock picking, mutual funds? Where was, how was that kind of all mashed together, so, mashed together there? So I had always occasionally bought stocks and I usually read it from like Kiplingers or the paper or something like that that caught my, like I had like JetBlue and lost money on it. Um, you know, I, I would just find random things around and, and, then convinced myself that I knew something about it and I'd buy the stock. Um, and really it's almost, it's almost scary how frequently I lost money. Like there's, it's amazing that I still invest in individual securities because <laughs> like for four or five years, all I did was lose money. I was just like the classic, you know, bought high and sold low. And as soon as bad news came out, I panicked and sold everything. And I was just terrible at it. I mean, it was just terrible at it because I wasn't looking, I didn't know anything about them as businesses, really. I was just looking at them as, you know, like lottery tickets. When you look back at some of those stocks, um, 
was it more a situation where your emotion dictated you're, you're losing money or we actually have did you have decent stocks you just didn't know how to deal with the emotional roller coaster of the news yeah and the market it was definitely emotion emotion okay and i think that well, that's one of the reasons i identify a little bit with you not not to not to put anything in your your words but um I, I almost consider myself sometimes like the Larry David of stock investing, right? Like, <laughs> and I feel like you're a kindred spirit, right? When I talk to you, it's like, oh, it seems like a good idea, but maybe it's not. And I think this will work, but you know, there's all this risk in this. And like, you know, it's always back and forth. And it's like, right. even to this day, I herniate over this stuff. Like, it's like, oh, is that, is there, did I buy too much? Did I buy too little? Like all the people that I idolize, like, Connor Haley and Ian Castle, you you look at their write-ups, you you listen to them talk about their ideas, and you're like, wow, they thought of everything. Every any question I could have asked, they've already come up with it. Their their investment case is rock solid. Right. This thesis is amazing. And I feel like I'm the exact opposite of that. I'm like always <laughs> like, uh, but I was even worse back then. So yes, I did mostly most of the things I did wrong were emotional mistakes. Like I bought. I, I tell clients all the time that I broke the tech bubble because I, <laughs> I literally bought tech stocks and I was thinking I was being brilliant because I was like, I'm not going to buy like pets.com. I'm buying the backbone of the internet. I'm going to buy like Cisco and Microsoft. And I bought them in like February of, of two, 2000. Uh, and literally it was like within two months, they all tanked. It was <laughs> yeah. crazy. It was crazy how quickly it was breathtaking, how quickly I lost all that money. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I remember, so I remember those times too, though, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty scary times. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty, it was pretty fun though. So I, I did invest through that, but I did after that, I was really getting into personal finance too. And so I made the, you know, the fortuitous choice to just start pumping my money into index funds. So I did that from that day forward until I kind of 2005, 2006, when I started picking stocks again, mm -hmm. I, I just invested, I just plowed money into index funds. And that, that worked really well in that period of time, you know, mm -hmm. it took off uh, after, after the tech bubble. So. Cool. So, so, and then your, your wife was fully supportive of what you do. I mean, is, does she invest too along with you? Or does she have any kind of input in what you're doing? No, she's, she doesn't invest in individual stocks, but she's better at it than I am. <laughs> she, she was like earlier this year, she was like, you should buy Peloton. So I went out and read the S1, you know, big me dummy. So I actually did research on it. And I was like, I don't know if I'm comfortable. You know, it's like, it'd be, you'd be making a bet on the subscription side of the business. And I don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't do it. And of course, Peloton has done spectacularly well. Um, she's interested in it, but I mean, I owe all of my success to her, honestly, because she's encouraged me to start my own company and do my own thing. And she, meanwhile, has a very successful corporate job that has provided for us very well over the years. So, I mean, I have the luxury to do what I'm doing both professionally and investing for fun because right. my wife is incredibly supportive and, and just hugely successful too. So it's just, it's, it's nice to see. And she's an inspiration and she's definitely been a supporter of mine so i hope she's listening or she'll be listening to this podcast <laughs> she probably she probably won't but you know just in case she's, she's amazing so yeah. um so, so as part of your um your your um your wealth um management business are you actually um recommending stocks 
um, to your clients, or is it more of a more of a call financial planning type of sphere? Yeah. So, so in kind of full disclosure, this is just just happening, but I'm actually closing down my firm um, as we speak. So, oh wow, um, I'm I'm rolling it up. But pr prior to that, um, most of my clients are financial planning clients, and then I have uh, also some asset management clients, investment management. So, but the investment management I do for folks is primarily asset allocation. So I use ETFs, a uh, couple of mutual funds. So I don't pick stocks for them. Okay. Um, and it's not something I felt like, I felt if I was ever gonna do that for clients, it needs to be like a full-time gig. Like mm -hmm. I can't do it part-time and really have the confidence and, you know, fiduciarily speaking, be able to say, okay, I would, uh, you should put your money with me because I'll take care of it. You know, if I'm only doing it part-time, I think that's right. probably not a good thing to do. Um, so I have managed some friends and family money over time uh, and pick stocks, but most of my clients are uh, kind of more traditional asset allocation. Okay. So I guess now you just dropped the bombshell on us. You're closing the business. Now, what are you going to be doing with your time now? What is it? What is the next uh, journey? Well, you know, you? it's, it's, it's kind of up in the air. It's the first time I haven't had some kind of grand plan for my life. Like I was going to, was going to, you know, start a business or do a new job or whatever. We, we, we kind of, we kind of, um, my wife and I thought about like, our family situation over COVID, which I'm sure a lot of people did. And um, we just came to the realization that, you know, my focus is on my family. I have two young kids, um, mm -hmm. seven and nine. And I wanted to spend more time with them. I wanted to make them more of a focus for our life. And we have some kind of like irons in the fire things we might do going forward. And they'll all probably involve moving or doing something doing something different. And I just didn't feel like I could give the attention to my children and my business and do something else like move house and that kind of thing right. all at the same time successfully. So we decided just to make space for changes in our life that I'd, I'd close it down, which was really bittersweet. I love my clients. I love working with my clients. I really like what I do. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to believe a little bit more in serendipity. So mm -hmm. I think who knows what will happen and hopefully it will be good. Um, um, well, well, hopefully you'll, you'll keep sharing your stock picks with us and, and geovesting. Yeah. Well, a good thing is I should <laughs> have more time. I should, I should have more time to spend on investing. It, ultimately, I think I should have more spot, more time to spend investing. So that's, that's, that's a good thing. And that, I, I think I'll really enjoy that. So you wrote, you, you write some nice articles on your website. Where's your website again? Um, it's bootstrapcapital.net. Are you shutting still, that down too? Or are you going to move those articles anywhere to like, archive them anywhere? I have it as set up now as a blog. So it's just all of the articles are still there. It's just in a blog format. There's no, nothing left from the business side. Yeah. I encourage people to go read some of your articles, man, because uh, you, you do write about some of the challenges of investing, the emotional experience. So I definitely, I uh, think it's a great source of material. So you wrote a piece for us, I think, or actually we, we uh, took one of your pieces and we um, highlighted on geo a few weeks ago or a few months ago. Yeah, about you know, about emotion and stuff. So I mean, so let's let's talk about there before we get to your process a little bit. Uh, have you have you figured the emotion thing, emotional part of investing out? I mean, have you you've gotten better at it? Obviously. Yeah, what do you, I. What do you um, think has helped you? Like, how'd you how'd you go through COVID and deal with that emotionally? Um, I've had um, 
I found that I deal with it much better now than I have previously. I'm always kind of, you know, cogitating on stuff, but I don't react to it nearly as much. Um, and I find that I really like purchasing stocks when they're declining. So in overall market declines, I have a tendency to be busy buying. Um, and I have no problem with that. And I, now that I've like gotten a better investing process and I'm more comfortable and I only invest in things that I, that I know fairly well, like seeing a stock decline 30 or 40% doesn't really phase me. It's microcap land and that happens all the time. You know, <laughs> it's just part of the part of the course. But that's also, you know, the opportunity, right? So if you know something well and it drops 30 or 40%, then then you have an opportunity to make money there. And so we should take advantage of that. That's structurally one of the things that happens a lot in the microcap world. So like that's one of the reasons I like it is because you can take advantage of it. You don't have to wait five years for a big market drawdown for things to drop and to reasonable prices that you can get into. Right. Um, so I've definitely rewired myself to uh, appreciate the volatility a lot more. Um, yeah, I know that. I mean, from uh, my perspective too, is that's the one thing I, I couldn't handle for many years. Like, like, I didn't know how to handle decline in stock prices because you kind of didn't know how to separate the market from, the actual company, the business. Exactly. Yeah. It took a long time to do that. And, you know, the more you get into a company and the better your process gets, the more you want your stocks to fall. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Kind of perverse, right? That's <laughs> the sign there. of maturity, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Hey, my stock went down. <laughs> yeah. People are like, what? <laughs> and they feel good about it. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Um, I love, I love that. Yeah. So what's, what's so, I, um, I think ahead. one of the things that I've, that I've changed over time is, and I, this is in reference to the one that you sent out to Geo folks. I wrote a, a, a note about prediction versus preparation. So we we have a tendency to think a lot. Like we're always trying to think about like what's the economy going to do? What's what's going to happen? What's gonna, how's that going to affect the companies I own? You know, and we spend lots of calories thinking through this. And I think it's good to do from a you know try to figure out what the upside and downside is in any of your investment cases. But the idea that we can actually predict it is is silly. And um, I think one of the things that I try to do, and this definitely spills over in working with clients, is rather than try to predict, predict just prepare, right? So we all know that stocks can drop 50, 60% because it's happened, right? We're just talking about the tech bubble and then the, the housing bubble, you know, so we know it happened. So rather than say, I'm going to try to follow all these macroeconomic indicators and, you know, I'm going to get out when things are ready to get out. Just decide what you're going to do in each of those situations. The Stoics have this thing. I don't remember what it's called, but like they kind of encourage people to go away and like marinate in the worst case that can happen. Sit down and just think about what's like, if you're going to make this decision, what's the worst thing that can come of it? And, and you should do that with your, with your investing. You should say, Oh, if I, you know, whether you're in, ETFs or stocks, you should say, what if the market drops 50 or 60%? What's that going to mean to me? Is it going to like, am I going to have a heart attack? Am I going to, what happens if that happens and I lose my job at the same time? And then, and then once you've kind of thought about it, decide what you would do in those situations. Like if it was, what would you want if like you now, what would you want to do if you knew that that was going to happen next year? Right. And say, well, 
well, I'd want to have enough money so that if I lost my job, I could get another one. If I if I if I'm a stock picker, and this is definitely me, if I'm a stock picker, I want to have cash if the markets drop, you know. So so all of those things inform like actual decisions you can make about how you want to run your finances going forward. So that if that does happen, you're robust and you're not panicking. And then you can you can say, well, the stock market's down 50%. This is what I thought I would do when that happens. Let's go do it. You know, <laughs> and maybe you will, maybe you won't, but at least you're mentally prepared um, and you kind of set yourself up to make better decisions. I think that's a much better use of time than trying to predict when the market's going to drop or right. what GDP growth is going to be next year or whatever. So true, man. And, and be prepared is so important. Just not, not only from like mentally, of course, right. Having that right to understand, you know, how to handle those vol- that volatility, but being mentally prepared also means being prepared, right? So if you make sure your mm-hmm. finances are in order when the market falls, so you're not panicking, so you're not selling your stock to cover bills, right? If you're a full-time investor, um, you know, don't, you know, if you sell your stock, make sure, you know, you're making a lot of money, you know, put some aside, you know, if, you know, tax time's coming, right? It's yeah. just, you know, April comes along and the stock's Markets falling, you didn't, you didn't allocate any of your money uh, for taxes. Now you got to sell stocks that are going down to pay taxes. All these small little things make and it took me years and years to kind of like figure that out. And yeah, you know, so once know, you panic once or twice, you don't want to <laughs> do it again. <laughs> I can tell. And the, the only thing you can predict yeah. is that when there is a crash in the market, people will panic, right? And, sure. and you want to be, it's, it's great to be in a position to take, you know, take advantage of that if you can. Um, and, um, you know, I wish, and even, even like predicting what happened to companies is kind of tough because sure you can be, you can sit there and try to play the scenario analysis, but you can't predict how companies will, um, react themselves to these things. No. Right? And a mm-hmm. lot of times it, they do great. I mean, so when I was the two, my 2008 portfolio, when, when, when I had a, when I we suffered that horrible <laughs> time history, calamity, <laughs> yeah, I was, on, I was a significant margin. Um, a lot of my stocks were just pieces of crap, right? I, and you know, I had good quality, but I had bad quality too. Um, it was a different time, and um, it was the first time I went through something that bad. I mean, I went through dot com. I mean, dot bomb was this was much different. And um, so I, I with this, I learned okay. Well, this this was. I mean, I got to do a little, be a little better prepared next time around. And as I, my stock picking got better, I got better quality <clears throat> companies. COVID nineteen was. The next test, right? Yep. <laughs> For us, and did I, you pass? I, 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 I actually, luckily, I passed. <laughs> I didn't know I would, but I went through like forty of my companies that I had, and and almost every one of them reacted and um, adjusted in a way. Yeah. Either um, they were already prepared for something like this financially, or they they were able to take their business and pivot somewhat to to take advantage of the situation. Um, and uh, turn into a positive it was really weird. And even even the ones that were maybe less quality, um, they still found ways to short their balance sheet, uh, cut expenses, and they just were, were good enough to survive. And yeah, come out, come out better. Yeah. And um, so, I, really, a lesson that I learned was really, really beef up my portfolio with high conviction stocks. Mm-hmm. And that should be ninety percent of what I own, as opposed to maybe at that time it was maybe sixty-five percent of what I own. I had all these little flyers too that I thought were going to be, you know, these options, you know, yeah, yeah, not options and literally, but um, and that I think helps. So the deeper I've got to know my companies, the more comfortable I've been able to handle volatility. Yeah, uh, and so I think we're talking about the same thing there, um, and 
you get your personal finances in order too <laughs> to be able to handle these. Yeah, these it was. It's it's, in, it's interesting because I mean, for for me, it's it's like in the current environment, I'm I'm more selling than buying, right? So I have more cash again, um, and one of the reasons that because. Uh, the other thing is like, you have to make peace with the, everything's going to be wrong to a degree. Right. So the other thing is like, you can play that prediction preparation thing to the upside too. Right. So you're, what happens if things you do, you, you own, take off and do really well, like at, how long do you want to own them? And like, at what prices would you consider selling them? And if you hold it and it round trips, which we've all experienced, right. So I've had several round trips in my career. Sure. Um, investing. And so like, would you feel bad if it went up hundred percent and then it went back down to where you, where you bought it, you know, like how, how, how would those types of things? So you should play those positive scenarios out in your brain too. So you don't, you don't just like blindly hold or, you know, you can make mistakes in good times as well that maybe aren't as severe as the ones that you'd make in bad times, but um, can be impactful nevertheless. So I think it goes both ways. Absolutely. I've been doing it. I've been actually adjusting my thinking, um, the way I manage my portfolio to some degree where one of my things is regrets. It's how do you fight regret? So selling the stock too early and having it go up, even if it was a high condition, because we, if you have price targets, which we can have price targets, we can have short term, medium term price targets, but often the case, these really great companies exceed those, uh, targets in the short run sometimes, and you don't know what to do because you know you, you have a feeling in ten years they're going to be a lot higher. But still, what do you do? Because they've kind of exactly. went past the target. So what I started doing was, I'm just I'm, I've always taken pretty big bets, but I'm taking bigger bets now on stocks I really love early as I can. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm just <clears throat> making, hope, hoping to make enough money because these bets are big enough. Um, when they get to my price or exceed them to some degree, maybe my, they exceed my eighteen month or year. Target. I always have like a short-term target where I think they might be worth in the short run. Yeah. And the long-term carbon is like, can it be a lot bigger? And if the answer is yes, I just I want to hold for, for a long time. Yeah. So now I'm just like, all right, well, I'll maybe sell 80% of my position at some point and just keep the rest forever. Yeah. Okay, like it's taken yeah. over. And so I'm gonna have I have all these little like, little smaller positions, kind of like in this little dead pool area. Uh-huh. But, but you know, but they they make <laughs> over time as they go up, it makes a difference. For um, sure. Yeah, you know, it's a little amount of money spent. So that kind of appeases my emotional kind of. Um, um, I, mean, uh, I agree. Like, it's tough to look at the it, particularly like mistakes of omission, but even worse is buying it and then selling it and then having it rip on you. That's a mistake <laughs> of commission and omission. You know, it's like right. it's the worst of both worlds. It is. Um, so I, I I agree. I've I've kind of internalized that a little bit too, and I have a tendency to hold. I think. Almost everything I've learned investing wise has encouraged me to just hold longer over time. You know, I'm I'm just much more patient about holding stocks for long periods of time now than I was when I started. It's boring, so, right? It's boring, but it, it just I mean it forces you to look at things differently too. If you're gonna it can be boring, but <laughs> usually something exciting happens at some point. I mean, you'll recognize <laughs> this. You know, there's there's stocks you own. And they don't do much of anything for like two or three years. And then they triple or quadruple in six months. Yeah. You know, it's I mean, a, it's these are small stocks about, we're talking about. So you can let it marinate. It's like you got this five years, but you got to have a five year period. And you had all these stocks for five years ago going up at the same time. That's exactly. Like it's exciting, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
So there's usually something going on with something, you know, if, if you've been doing it long enough, there's something's maturing or, or happening. But you do, 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 do short-term stuff though. I've, you know, here and there, I've, you'll, you will take advantage of special situations. I think here and there, I've noticed that. So I, I used to, when I first started and I can, and like I identified much more as a value investor when I started, like I was very much like, you know, Buffett and value focused. And I did a lot of, I sought out a lot of special situations. Um, but I've actually stopped doing that. I just, I read a lot of stuff, right? You read a lot, of, you read twice as much as I do, 10 times as much as I do, but I get a lot of things across my plate. And so I look into a lot of things and you'll stumble upon special situations, whether you want to or not. And so sometimes I'm like, and some of the ones I've highlighted on geo are just things that I've like, oh, I just happen to follow this stock. And then this is news that since I know you're interested in the info arb stuff, I always, if I see something like that, I always post it on your, on your site. Um, I don't really look for that stuff anymore because what I was, what I would do is I'd spend a lot of time researching that situation or that stock, and then I'd buy it. And then the special situation would happen. It would go up like 30% and you'd have to sell it. And then I'd be like, okay, (laughs) I spent all this time and I made 30%. That's great. But what I really want to do is like, hold it for five years and make 500%, you know? So (laughs) it's like. It, it felt like a lot of work for, you know, not, not, if you're not going to focus on it a lot of time and grind out the returns that you need to grind out in the special situation space, I think it's not as probably productive. And for me, I was just not going to be a, a, like a special situations investor. So every once in a while, I'll find one or one of the companies you own will turn into one or something like that. But I, I don't, I don't really pursue it per se. Um, but you know they, they cross the plate every once in a while, and so you'll see them. Now, do you mainly invest in nano caps and micro caps and small caps? Is that where you is that where you get to play? I, I I'm probably seventy to eighty percent invested in micro caps all the time. I don't I I'm I'm happy to invest in anything. Like at the end of the day, I'm trying to make money. Um, <clears throat> I spend almost all of my research time on micro caps and nano caps, though, because when I invest in larger companies. I just follow enough people now and and have read enough investment cases that there's information out there for like, for instance, I own Spotify. I didn't really do, I mean, I read their 10K, I look at their investor presentations, but then I read like three or four really good investment write-ups on it and made up my mind. So for a lot of the larger positions that larger companies I hold, I just tr- treat it more like a portfolio manager decision. Like I like it, I think it'll do well you know, this person on the interwebs pitched it and I trust them and I, I'm going to take a position in it. I don't have a tendency to do as much diligence on those because right. it's readily available out there. If I'm going to spend time researching something, I'm going to spend time researching something that is very difficult to find any information out because it's not out there. So that's where I think microcaps, that's where you can get your edge. And that's, that's why I like doing it, right? It's like there's you you invest in these companies that like nobody's ever heard of. Right. right. You know, <laughs> if I talk stocks at a party, I have to talk about Spotify because nobody will <laughs> nobody will know like Mama Mancini's meatballs or you know Houston Wire and Cable Company or anything like that. You, so you, you own those stocks, Bobby? Y'all me don't ask. Yes, uh, I own both of them. Yes, and Spotify. Okay, good. And Spotify. You heard that, Bobby? 
So, uh, <laughs> um, so let's talk about about your process. I mean, do you have an identifiable process that you use uh, over and over again? Um, technical analysis, fundamental analysis, qualitative versus quantitative. Kind of give us a little bit of taste of your process. I'm I'm what you call eclectic. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. <laughs> I I I tell people now I invest in stocks that I like. It's been a it's been an evolution. Like you talk, like I know we've talked about this. It's an evolution. Any investor that's been doing this for five, 10, 15, 20 years, you, their their process today is different than it was, you know, five years ago. And that's certainly true with me. I like I said, I really started kind of identifying as a value investor, and that's kind of how I started out. And what I really liked about it was the quantitative nature, right? So I'm an engineer by background. So you can do a discounted cash flow analysis and you can come up with, you know, what you think of. Uh, fair prices and you can look at the price and you can compare them. So that was all very appealing to me. Um, <clears throat> but I I immediately chafed about the, you're not supposed to invest in tech if you're a value investor kind of thing. Because I was an engineer, you know, I like tech, I like computers, I'm a geek. You know, right. so I, I was like, well, I'm sure I can find value tech investments too. And what happened was... <clears throat> kind of when I started really seriously picking stocks was kind of like the 2005, 2006, 2007. And I started with larger companies and I would do a lot of screening and what would come up as value investments were these little, little tiny companies and there was no information on them. And so I would have to go dig it out and try to find it. And so that's kind of how I got invested in, started investing in microcaps is because you know, when I would screen for value, I wouldn't find many in the larger cap companies. But at the time, in small cap companies and micro cap companies, it was all over the place. And so I just started investing in these really small companies, really tentatively at first, like little tiny, you know, half a percent investments and stuff like that. And then over time, just discovered that that's really where I like to concentrate. And, um, you know, some really fun things happened, like you know, I had like a stock that eight x on me in a year, and I was like, "I'm a microcap investor." Who was that one? You remember that the symbol? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was Nautilus. Nautilus, NLS. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was a state mistake of omission as well, despite <laughs> the fact that was probably one of my foundational companies. So I invested in this. I don't in like 2009, 2010, somewhere around that time frame, and. It was one of the companies that I that I first really researched, followed very closely. You know, a lot of my investment process today follows the same kind of framework. I, I'm an operator by background, right? So I spent 16 years getting things done in a corporation in logistics. And so when I look at companies, I'm really looking at what progress they're making. I'm like, what are they, what do they say they're doing? What are they doing? How are they delivering it? How are they measuring it? And it was just one of those companies that the market hated at the time. Um, they had had a stumble, a product that didn't work very well. And so their, you know, their stock price crashed and they brought in a new CEO and then a hedge fund CEO kind of took it over and was running it. And they were making all these operational improvements that I was like, well, if I was running the company, that's what I would be doing. This all sounds really smart, but the market's not liking it. So I just kept buying more and buying more. You know, every quarter they'd release what I thought were really positive developments, 
And I was just focused on the company, not really the, the stock price. And so I just continually bought more while, as long as they were, you know, producing good, good news. And then eventually the market caught on and it, and it, it went up really rapidly and kind of, I kind of exited and I was like, wow, this is what I, this is like the kind of investing <laughs> I want to do. Right. And so it's kind of like Around, evolved yeah. from, from there. Yeah. But I didn't. So here's the omission. So you want a, a nice story. I, uh, it happened again. So they had a, a bad product launch a, a year or two ago and their stock got crushed. And so I bought it again <clears throat> without doing a lot of research on it. And then, and, and I owned it uh, in 2019 mm-hmm. and I, then I dug into it a little bit more and I was like, you know, it's, it's actually not that great of a company. It's a good company. It's an okay company, but it's not a stellar company. And like, to your point, I would rather own companies that I am comfortable owning for a really long time. And so I said, well, I'm just going to sell it, you know, and I, I got out, it, you know, I didn't make money or lose money of any significance. And this was in January of 2020. Oof. So, and then the market crashes. And I use their products. Like I, I was trying to order Bowflex dumbbells, which they make. Right. And um, I couldn't get them because they were backlogged. And I knew that home fitness was going to take off during this pandemic while we were all locked down. I knew it. And I thought to myself, I should get back into Nautilus because this is going to do phenomenally well. And I never did. I don't know why. I oh, had man. no idea why I never bought back in. And of course, it's up 10x since yeah. then. Crazy. You know, so it's crazy. So anyway. I was busy eating peanut butter jelly sandwiches and Doritos to, <laughs> to yeah. that connection. Yeah, no, me too. I definitely stress ate that whole time. Yeah. But I, remember I did the same. I wanted to eventually, I, I was you know, working out at my buddy's house and he had a, he had a gym outside, but very um, limited equipment. So I said, I'll, you know, you let me work in your patio. I'll, I'll buy some equipment. So uh, I made the phone calls and that was already too. It was probably, this is probably by like um, uh, end of April early May. Yeah. Oh my God, everything slowed out here. And then I went <clears> to the <throat> Oh my God, look at the stock's gone crazy. <laughs> I started looking, I was late to that, late to that whole little trip, but yeah, I know what you're talking about there. But yeah, I, I actually own Nautilus at one point back in probably around when you might've owned it originally, but I sold it really early though. I didn't, yeah. I didn't hold it for the whole way. So you got, so you, you fell in love with, that was your first big win. I think, is that what you're telling me? That was, that was my first, that was my first multi-bagger for sure right. um i had had some other good wins um but that was that was the one that really kind of cemented it for me so and we, since we, then i've kind of just gotten more i think like you i've just drifted more towards companies that i consider higher quality and mm-hmm. that that can take a lot of shapes and it's not it's not it's often not value it's often not like i think this is cheap on its metrics now i'm I'm happy and love to buy things that are cheap on their metrics, <laughs> but if they're not cheap on their metrics, I'm not, it's not going to stop me from buying. If I think it's a good, if it's a good opportunity. I kind of enjoy that a little bit. I enjoy that hunt of trying to find these companies that, <clears throat> that may maybe look broken and they're going to get, and, but things are going to change relatively soon to based on due diligence and our, you know, research. I kind of have fun with that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they look expensive now, but, they're going to look really cheap in a year from now, the current price, if things go right with the return around and stuff. And it's, it's, it's that area that investors tend to ignore, especially in nanocap land. Right. I mean, yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. And for me too, it's like a little bit of personality. So as I've evolved, I I've really 
I've really pushed my time horizon for ownership longer. And so now I think a little bit differently now that I've owned stocks for five, six, nine years, you, you think about like, do I want to own this for five years through a 50% drawdown? And it keeps you away from stocks that you're going to hate. In yeah. fact, I, I have said this on Twitter a couple of times. I was like, if there's a, you know, it's nothing like a big market drawdown to show you which companies in your portfolio you actually hate. Because <laughs> yeah. if you see something drop 50%, you're like, ah, I should have sold that. Then you know that you're not like, that it's not, it's not for you. So I think a lot more about that now. So I think about like, oh, if I'm going to buy this and it does, and it goes poorly at a period in time, is it going to be a company I'm interested in, in holding? And that can be for a variety of reasons. There's this company called Rewalk Robotics, right? I don't own it and I've never owned it, but it's interesting. I've researched it off and on and they make, you know, exoskeletons that they're basically bionic things for people that can't walk. And you're like, why wouldn't I want to invest in a company that makes bionics? Why would I make a rule uh, in my process that says I'm not allowed to invest in this? Right. That's like, I would love to give capital to a company that was going to help people walk. Right. And so you want to have, I want to have some level of, commitment and passion to the company that I'm investing in that I think can help sustain you through those dark times too, because they're going to happen. And so you may as well invest in things that, you know, I don't own things like Altria. I don't have any particular problem with it, but it's cheap and it has a high dividend, but I'm not going to own it because I don't, if it goes down 50%, I'm going to be like, I own a cigarette maker. Like, why am I doing this? Like just to make 8% yield? Like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do that to myself. So that's why I say I'm eclectic now. I, I, I like to invest in things that are interesting to me. So I go that way a lot more. You can make it, if you can make investing fun, it's even better. So yeah, for sure. So I mean, how like, um, if you look at your portfolio, diversification versus concentration, how do you, how do you manage your portfolio along those lines? So first I have to say that I admire people that are concentrated and like highly concentrated, you know, like the Connor Haley's of the world and Ian Castle, like that hold like, you know, they're like gunslinger, right? You know, they're steely blue eyes and they have a six shot revolver and every company's got to pull their weight. And as soon as one doesn't, they fire it out and they replace it with another one. Like, I think that's the way to invest, but that's not what I do. Um, I, I'm not that good. So I'm more diversified. I've always been comf- more comfortable being a little bit more diversified. So I hold like, I think of my portfolio as 20 by five. So 20 positions at 5%. It probably never actually works out that way because um, I also think kind of like three position sizes. So the 5% is kind of like my standard size. That's what I want to get to if I have conviction in a company and I want to own it for the long term but I'll frequently take small positions. I research better when I own the company. So if I you know, put in five or 10 hours of diligence on a company and it looks like it checks most of the boxes, I'll buy a little bit and you know, I'll keep researching and then it's in my portfolio. And for me, it's also a good screening tool because if you buy it with the intention, you're gonna keep researching it and then it's in your portfolio and you kind of watch it, but you never really research it anymore and you don't really, it doesn't really interest you and like the love fades away. You're like, okay, well I bought it, but I haven't done any work on it. So it's probably not something that I'm really that passionate about. So I should probably get out of it. So I'll look at it again and make sure I'm not making a mistake and I'll, I'll get out of it. If it's not something that I think I'm really going to want to own for a long time. 
So you have these little positions. Um, <clears throat> and then you have on the other side, you have positions that are bigger that have grown because they're, you know, right. things that you like and you've owned for a long time. And maybe they're 10% of your portfolio now. Um, so I think that's, I think if you look at my portfolio, generally I'm going to have 50% in my top four or five names. Okay. Um, and then I'll have this, you know, another bunch that are all 5% position, then this long tail of stuff that I'm researching or interested in, or, you know, when I, when I'm convinced that I want to own a company and I want to make it a 5% position, I usually go in pretty big. Like I, I try to buy like 3% straight away, as opposed mm -hmm. to I've had too many that like I buy a little bit with the intent that I'm going to average down or buy it over time. And then they take off and you're not like, you've got this like one or 2% position. You're like, ah, I lost right. it. So if I'm, if I have conviction, I like to, I like to make my first buy relatively big and then follow it. And if it drops and you have conviction, you can add to it. If it goes up, you know, I'm much more comfortable buying after it's gone up now than I used to be. I used to almost never buy on the way up. Now I'm much more comfortable doing that. So in the same way, yeah. I try to go in and get, get as much stock as I can in the beginning if I like the stock a lot. And yeah, you know, and I'm not afraid to add in the way up too if the story's getting better. I mean, there's a reason yeah. as they're going up. So, yeah. So, I mean, um, so let's talk about like, um, you know, I like to, you know, maybe some of your war stories and some of your worst experiences in the nano cap, my cap space when you got involved there was maybe one you don't want to share, but you got to now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now I, I have. A long history of losing money. You know, you talk about avoiding the crowd. Like I am, like so out of the crowd. Like you're, you're <laughs> talking to a guy that trades in his pajamas a lot of the time. Um, so I owned a couple of bank stocks at the top of the housing bubble. Little bank stocks. One was called Chorus Bank. They did mezzanine lending to um, condominium projects, which is exactly what you want to own at the top of the housing bubble. So. <laughs> Um, another one called Vineyard Bank, which is a local little bank that I owned. Uh, it's it's in, in Napa. Um, both of them were donuts. Both of them went belly up during the crisis. Chorus was interesting because I used to think they wrote the best annual letters. Like they wrote these annual letters that were like, um, you know, they. I, I felt like I got an education in um, in banking when I would read their annual letters, but it turns out that they were like a terrible bank, you know, from their <laughs> underwriting or maybe their timing was just terrible. Right. Um, so let, that's kept me shy of bank stocks since then. Mm -hmm. I think the errors of omission are, are the worst. Um, I, I, I've definitely looked at stuff that then did really well that I kick myself that I didn't own, like that I didn't buy or, you know, didn't get into and I should have, and I'd done all the work. Um, and there's one that I did end up buying. It's a, it's a commission or emission in reverse. Um, that I, I own this company called Turtle Beach. Oh, and yeah. it's um, a headphone manufacturer. Yeah. yeah. And so I bought it during prior to i pitched it on little grapevine yeah mm -hmm. so i i bought it um prior to the covid crisis and i bought more during covid 
um, and it did really well. So I redeemed myself on this, but I researched Turtle Beach years ago and Turtle Beach was, um, at the time they made headphones for consoles, which they do now. And they also had this like directed sound business. So if it was for like speakers and that kind of stuff. Um, and the directed sound business was consuming cash and the headphone business was generating cash. And so I did all this research on that company and I was like, I like the headphone business, but I don't like this cash burn, right? And the balance sheet wasn't particularly strong. So, but I put it on a watch list. I actually got daily updates on the price sent to me from Google or whatever. So every day I saw the price of the stock. And so, so eventually they said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna stop R&D and this, this money losing business. We're gonna stop the cash burn. I was like, great, that's a positive development. And then they said, okay, we're gonna stop trying to commercialize this business at all, like a couple quarters later. I said, like, oh, that's even better. A couple quarters after that. And I'm watching the stock price the whole time. It's in like the threes, like mid twos to threes the whole time. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna, you know, they're gonna, then they announced they're gonna sell off the division. They're gonna close the division. I was like, perfect. Yeah. I never bought it, never bought it. This goes on for like a year. And all the developments, just like I said, all the developments are positive. <laughs> Everything's moving the way I thought it should move. And I never buy the stock. Then Fortnite comes along. Oh, right. Fortnite, you know, so the Battle Royale game. So everybody buys headphones and their stock goes from like $3 to 30 bucks. Yeah. And I'm like, what <laughs> am I doing? Like, I totally missed. And, that, and, that, and that, why didn't I had cash? I knew everything about the company that I needed to know. Why did I never pull the trigger? I, to this day, don't know the answer to the question. It's really amazing. <laughs> but there is, you know, redemption. I did buy it eventually. And I did buy a chunk down, right? around four. Yeah. So yeah. it got, it got cheap again. And um, I, I, so I do, I do own it now and it's done well for me, but that was definitely a big mistake of omission. It's close to 30 bucks now, isn't it? Like 27 bucks, 28 bucks. Yeah. It got over 30 and it's now it's um, yeah, it's, it's in the twenties, the high twenties. Wow. That's awesome. I, I think I, I passed up on that too. I actually, when the Fortnite thing came along, I had a little bit of it in like 30% and bailed on it and then, then it went. I don't know what's worse, <laughs> not owning it and seeing it go up or owning a little bit. Of <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for a long time, I used to buy little positions and stuff saying, well, if it goes up a lot, then at least I have a little position. But then it doesn't really, it doesn't move the needle. So it's not, you know, it's right. not. But, you know, I know you research 10 times as much, 10 times as many companies as I do. It's just going to happen. You know, sure. companies, you're going to see companies that look good and you think maybe, but you never get around to it and whatever. It's just part of, it's just part of investing. There's going to be a lot that you miss. That's just have to become okay with that. I've become more okay with it. But the ones that, the ones that I think are really difficult for me, the reason that one was really difficult is that I wanted to invest in it and I should have invested in it. And I did the work. There was nothing stopping me. That's, that's, that's the thing that really bothers me. And that's the lesson I took away from it is like, be a little less Larry David sometimes. And when you've done the work, you know, and you've, and you're, and you feel like, you know, it take the leap, like, you know, your reasoning is probably correct if you do the work. So just go ahead and take the leap. Yeah. Yeah. So is there any, um, any stock you want to pitch today at all? Anything you like these days? 
Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I will talk about one that I like. I, I like lots of stuff, but I'll talk about this one. It's called Houston Wire and Cable Company. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wrote it up on MCC a while ago, um, and I owned it prior to MCC. HWCC, yeah. Okay. I owned it prior to COVID and I sold it. They, they, they're a distributor. They distribute wire and cable. Um, one of their big end markets is oil and gas. Um, so I don't know if you know, people are familiar with the company Fastenal. Basically, they, they're these warehouses and they ship parts to um, you know, stores that use them or um, you know, machine shops that use them or you know, factories or or plants that need to have this stuff in stock. So they, they'll, they'll ship all the small parts. Houston Wire and Cable Company does mostly wire and electrical components. <clears throat> okay. And so I owned it. I like this company. I like these types of companies, distribution companies, because they're a little bit anti-fragile. Basically, they're like outsourced inventory management. So you don't want to keep this stuff, all this stuff in your stock room. So, you know, a distributor holds it for you and then they'll get it to you in 24 hours if you need it. And as a result, they, they have buying power because they aggregate all this demand for all these little companies. Right. Um, and the companies get really good service and they don't have to hold the, the product in stock. Mm -hmm. But when there's a recession or something, the, the demand dries up and they release a lot of inventory. So a lot of their working capital goes down. Mm -hmm. um, so they reduce their inventory. They have this like surge of cash during a recession, which is great. And then inevitably what you'll see them do is like rationalize their footprint, maybe sell off a building or get out of it, you know, and, and cut some costs. Um, and they have cash to invest. And then maybe they'll go out when things start to go turn around, they'll go out and buy a competitor and they'll start to expand again. So they have these kind of like anti-fragile characteristics that I like. And so I own this, but since it was related to oil and gas, and I thought oil and gas was going to take a while to come back, I sold it right when COVID hit, but I've just bought it back recently um, because I think, you know, I think it'll be, it'll, it could do well in the reopening. Um, if oil and gas take off again, you know, the demand will pick up for them. But importantly, it's a completely different company than when I owned it before. So they, they, they followed the playbook, you know, they, paid down all their debt. They sold off a couple of divisions. So now they have a lot of cash, they have no debt. And so they're in a, just a much healthier position than they were um, when, when I first owned it. Um, so yeah, I, I, think I, completed, I they completed the sale of an asset recently here, I think. If you, uh, yeah, they sold, they actually sold two assets, I believe uh, in the last several months. Um, they're, they're, they're both smaller, smaller holdings for them, but yeah. So they've increased their cash holdings. And so they have like no debt now and they haven't reported since all this has happened. So like none of their current financials show the fact that their debt's gone. You just have to read the press releases to know that they've paid it off. Info um, there, right? Was it, yeah. was it, do you know how much of that's going to save them in interest expense alone? Did you? I don't off the top of my head. That's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. That brings, that'd be pretty interesting. Um, and there's an activist in it. Um, oh, there is. Who owns like 12% David Nirenberg. Um, Okay. And I think he's been increasing his um his uh position if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. So I I really like it. I think it's well positioned. What'd say? Has he been a shareholder for a while? Yes. He he I think at least a year or more. Um but yeah, predates predates the COVID. 
So I yeah. think I think he increased over COVID. Yeah, um, given, the, given the present market conditions and understanding that the economy, economic recovery will evolve over time, we exit the quarter, I guess their last quarter, an increasingly lean and profitable company and a better position for the period ahead. That's pretty interesting. Nice little comments there. Yep. So, all right. So well, that's one I've been now to me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got have, everything. It's cheap. It's got info arb. So they had come one, see. come all. They had fifty-two million. I own it, Bobby. <laughs> Fifty-five. So they paid out. They just paid out a substantial amount of debt here recently. Actually, yeah, mm -hmm. yep. they were over fifty million here not too long ago. Yeah, they had like seventy million of debt at the end of twenty nineteen, and it's it's it should all be gone. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to be, uh, thank you so much there. I'll be definitely bar barking on this path for a little bit. Yeah. Let me know if you find anything interesting. <laughs> yeah. Great, man. Uh, so anything else you want to talk about, Brian? I mean, this has been a great discussion. I can talk about this stuff all day, but no, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. I'm sure you have other stuff to do. I just want to thank you. I mean, really, I'm like, like just a regular guy that, trade stocks sometimes and I, I appreciate you having me on. You really are avoiding a crowd with this podcast. I, mean, <laughs> well, I love it, man. I love it. And you all know, six it. people are going to listen to it. My family <laughs> will get through at least the third. Are you still in, uh, do you still own GLGI? I do. Yeah. I've owned GLGI for a long time, like so, six or seven years. Yeah. You brought that back and does that they're off everyone listening. Um, they make plastic pallets. Um, and I owned that in the, in the past years ago. Um, around 30 or 40 cents and we sold it and Brian brought it back to our attention not, uh, uh, in 2020, I bought it, bought it back. So um, pretty interesting company there. So um, yeah. anything happening there, I know they, I know the, um, so the, <coughs> the insider buying is still going on there, I believe, right? There, there has been some insider yeah. buying. Yeah, he's, he's been, a, he's been a, a frequent purchaser. I don't know recently, but he'll stop for like six or nine months and then he'll, he'll buy a bunch and then not a bunch. It's, it's kind of de minimis really, but um, he's a constant buyer of stock. Um, there's not that they, I think one of the big things that came out recently that I didn't know about, and I, I learned it through other people commenting on, on MCC is that there's been a, a change at like Walmart I think it's Walmart or Costco. I can't remember which one has made made a requirement that all of their goods be on plastic pallets going forward. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so it's got a good ESG angle to it, and so that could be very beneficial for them. But it's been an interesting company to own over time because they've had a lot of operational difficulties. So you know, they'll be like two steps forward, one step backwards. They'll get a big new client, but then they'll have to do a bunch of overtime because their facilities maxed out and so right. their costs will glow up. And so all these things that like ultimately, um, that ultimately um, they've had to overcome. So it's been interesting to watch. They've had lots of operational challenges and, uh, um, but you know, they've they overcome them and it's kind of like it moves and fits and starts and does nothing for a while. And then goes up 50% in a couple of weeks. So it's been a, it's been an interesting company to own. You know, they've sold, um, I'm sorry, cured any other diversification issues. I mean, customer concentration issues. Gradually, they're still yeah. fairly concentrated. Um, but they gradually have, have, uh, have, uh, gotten a little bit more diversified, but 
a couple of clients still account for the majority of their revenue. Right. Remember they tried to go um, private years ago, right? And I guess they pulled that. Uh, that was prior to my time. Maybe there, there was always this, when I owned it, you know, one of the six of six people that follow it in the world, you know, like you would talk to about it. There was this fear. I guess they had tried to go private here. He had talked about going private previously. He owns another private company um, that does a similar thing. So he could probably merge it easily. Right. Um, but he, um, but that's died down. I don't, I, I haven't heard anything about it. Um, I guess I mean, they were, they were going to do it. And this, this might've been five years ago. And, I know I, at that time, I think I owned a stock at that time and I was a little upset about it. And I said, you, you know, everyone was complaining about it. And he just basically said, all right, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. And I've, I've, um, I've emailed him before. And he said one time, like, I have lots of my friends and family own this company. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything to like, I wouldn't do any, I wouldn't want to do anything to screw over the shareholders. And so yeah. I kind of took it at base value and I was like, okay. You know, he hasn't, other than that rumor, I, he hasn't done anything that I would consider a problem. No, I like why I like him a lot, man. He's, he's been, he's been, a, he's a straight shooter. He puts his money where his mouth is. You know, he buys the stock. He's helped fund the company. Um, so, uh, and you know, we're last, he's 2000, I think 13, 14, we started covering it a little before that. And he's still around man, and chugging away. And I think he's, he's actually slowly, but surely getting to where he said he wants to be. So, and, I, and it, it makes sense, plastic pallets. I mean, they last longer than the wood pallets. They're more expensive up front. That's the thing. It's a higher cost of investment in the beginning. Yes. But your return on it's much better over the long run. The, the lifetime value is probably better. But, you know, and I have a soft spot. I used to work in distribution. And so all, most pallets are wooden. And every distribution center you have this is a big, ugly thing of, of you know, wooden broken pallets it's just a nightmare to handle it's by far in a way a superior product yeah um to do but but um it's it's taken them a while to get there i i'm i'll probably die with it in my portfolio but uh, <laughs> i i'm it's one of those things where i think it once it catches on widely and gets adopted and becomes kind of an industry standard it could be a really it could it could really accelerate it's one of those things you hang around long enough. It's probably gonna you can, it's gonna be one of those years where it just just pops, and just goes crazy, and in the meantime, just chugs along. So that's how I'm looking at it. Awesome, man. Well, thanks, Brian. You're welcome. Thank you. It was awesome, awesome chat with you. I'm glad we did this. I, mean, I think last time we talked was sometime during, you know, mid mid, mid 2020 or early 2020. Can't remember. Yeah, it's yeah. it was a different world then. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I, you hey Brian, where, yeah, where can people go and follow you on social media and get more information? So I'm at the, probably the best place right now is Twitter. I'm Bootstrap sixty eight at Twitter. Was Bootstrap sixty nine taken? Is is that what happened? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a family man, so yeah, yeah, I figured as much. Okay, <laughs> well, with that, guys, thank you so much for for your chat today. I, I know I learned a lot, and uh, yeah, look forward to uh, to the next one. Right? Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Mosh. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network and Modestway Don are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy, sell, short, cover securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value if we are long and fall if we are short. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast.